Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Alexander Akimov. I'm the president of Australasian Association for Communist and Post-Communist Studies. I will serve um, in today's session as master of ceremonies. So hopefully um, we'll have a good one too. Um, the aim of this online roundtable is to mark 75th anniversary of the end of World War II. For today's um, roundtable, which is inaugural uh, roundtable uh, for our association, we have partnered up with Griffiths Asia Institute and um, um, hopefully will continue benefiting from um, very productive collaboration with Griffiths Asia Institute. So I would like to invite uh, Professor Caitlin Burns, Director of Griffiths Asia Institute, to provide an official welcome to the event. Caitlin, over to you. Thank you so much, Alexander, and welcome everyone. My name is Caitlin Byrne. I'm the director of the Griffith Asia Institute. And it really is a delight for me to be able to welcome you today to this sem seminar, 75 years since the end of World War II, talking about commemoration and historical understanding. Let me begin, firstly, by respectfully acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which we are meeting today. For me here in Brisbane, that's the Turrbal and the Jagera people, but of course many of you, including our panellists, are joining us from many other lands, so welcome. In the spirit of reconciliation, I pay my respects to elders past and present, and I extend that respect to all First Nations peoples around the world. And let me also make a few acknowledgements of some of the special guests who are with us or joining us in this virtual platform as well. We're really pleased to be able to welcome Dr. Alexei Pavlovsky, Ambassador of the Russian Federation to the Commonwealth of Australia. Also, Satu Matila Budik, Ambassador of the Embassy of Finland. Mr. Marat Kalizanov, I hope I got that right, Consul General of the Republic of Kazakhstan. Ivana Isudovoric, Chargé d'Affaires of the Embassy of the Republic of Serbia. Alexei Katkov, attaché, Embassy of the Russian Federation to Australia. And Lukas Graban, First Secretary of the Embassy of the Republic of Poland in Canberra. Welcome to you and of course to all our guests. We're really pleased you're able to join us. Let me just take uh, a minute to outline the format for today's webinar and introduce our panelists very briefly to you. We have asked each of the panelists today to begin with just a five minute overview of a key area of consideration for today's topic. And we will be beginning with Professor Roger Markwick from the University of Newcastle, who will really set the scene talking about World War II, its objectives and aftermath. And he will be followed by Professor Mark Adele from the University of Melbourne, who's going to then look into the Soviet Union's Second World Wars, and in particular looking at history and memory. He will be followed by Associate Professor Alexei Muraviev, and Alexei will be going into a little bit of more detail, talking about the Red Machine in action, Soviet military power, and the Allied victory in World War II. Followed then by Adjunct Associate Professor Slobodanka Vladiv Glover from Monash University, who'll be taking us on a slightly different uh, thread of discussion around narratives of the victors and the losers in World War II, particularly in the Balkans. Followed by Dr. Leonid Petrov, who will continue with the question really around World War II in Northeast Asia, has it really ended? 
So as you can see, we have an interdisciplinary panel, a panel that uh, draws together scholars from right across Australia. And, and I think you're in for an absolutely cracker discussion this afternoon. At the end of that, we'll be joined by Dr. Alexander Akimov. And Alexander is the, the current president of the Australasian Association for Communist and post-communist studies. He's also a member of the Griffith Asia Institute and we're really delighted to be working with Alexander today. Alexander will join us again at the end of that initial discussion to moderate the question and answers. And of course, you will all be welcome to submit your questions through the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen and you can do that at any time during today's seminar. So that's probably enough from me. Let me begin by welcoming our panellists and in particular welcoming Professor Roger Markwick as he opens the discussion today talking about World War II, objectives and aftermaths. Roger, the floor is yours. Thank you, Caitlin. World War II, a huge topic, huge topic to cover in any time, let alone uh, in 10 minutes. I think the first thing to note about World War II, of course, is it was, an, it was a very global war. In fact, I go so far as to say in many respects, it was the first world war in reality. Of course, like a world war, it was extremely barbaric. An estimated, a conservative estimate of the numbers of people who died, let alone all of those other people who were casualties, is that perhaps 50 million people died alone. And with it, cities and agriculture ravaged. In some respects, it was a continuation of World War I, um, but World War I, I'd suggest, was primarily, but not exclusively, a European war. For that, we could add um, the Middle East. But World War II stretched much further geographically, that's for sure. From Berlin to Beijing, Moscow to Tokyo, London to Singapore, even to Darwin, dare I say it. The war itself goes under a number of uh, different titles, actually, depending on perspective you have on it and where you sit, sometimes referred to as the Good War, sometimes referred to as the Anti-Fascist War, and especially in Russia and the former Soviet Union, as the Great Patriotic War. Well, we're here to commemorate the 75th anniversary of the end of the war, but I'd suggest from the outset that there is a distinction to be made between commemoration um, and historical understanding. And I think that's really the, the primary task of the panel in front of us today and this, the discussion that we're pursuing. We need to understand what, in fact, is being commemorated. And to do that, we need to understand the players in this war and what was at stake for them, their interests. If I can just uh, quote from uh, Clausewitz's famous dictum, almost a cliche, I think, in war studies, War is a continuation of politics by other means. And I would go far, so far as to say, of course, uh, nation states in particular have all sorts of means of asserting their interests, but war, and particularly total war, is really the ultimate weapon in doing so. So when we look at the objectives in this particular war, the standard narrative really is that World War II started with a Nazi invasion of Poland on the 1st of September, and then ended on the 8th or 9th of May 1945. But I suggest we could cast down, we should cast our net wider. I'd suggest, in fact, in many respects, that's quite a Eurocentric view of uh, the nature of this war. We need to cast out our net wider conceptually, 
geopolitically and temporally in that regard. When we look at the principal players, and I'm only talking about the principal players, we see on the one hand what we might call the Axis powers, principally Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, and on that side too, military fascist Japan, who, by the way, back in 1936, had at least signed the so-called anti-common-term prop. Then in July 1941, and here I am focusing obviously on the European theater, we see the formation of the Grand Alliance, primarily, no, exclusively, the United States, Britain, and the Soviet Union, with, let's say, support from, at that stage, defeated France. It's pretty clear, I don't think there's any ambiguity about the fact that the Axis powers were the aggressors in, these, in this particular war. But there's something that I think needs, that we need to look at in this regard, a little step back a little bit, and that is in terms of the um, broader perspectives in terms of their place in the world. And what's striking about all of those, those nation states that I mentioned as um, Axis aggressors was that they're essentially late capitalist industrialized. And they found themselves arrayed, in this instance, against the Grand Alliance in particular, they were arrayed against the old imperial powers, the UK, France, such as it was, and the rising capitalist hegemon in the world, the United States, plus another uh, late industrializer, if you like, Stalin's semi-industrialized socialist state. Now, in terms of objectives, Germany, I think, very hard to summarize those objectives, but I would say their number one priority, the consistent thread was a desire to have their own Raj, so to speak. Lebensraum, essentially, in the Soviet lands. Now, that waxes and wanes, we know that. And with a view, ultimately, to becoming a world power. That is, to challenge on that basis, having uh, conquered the, the former Soviet lands, the Soviet lands, to challenge Anglo-American dominance as a long-term perspective. Italy, too. Germany's ally, much weaker, of course, militarily, industrially, and so forth, sought to reassert itself in the Mediterranean, North Africa, and Southern Europe. If we turn, however, if we cross to the Pacific, we can see that uh, Japan is asserting itself as early as 1931. A resource-hungry Japan uh, occupied Manchuria in that year. By 1937, it had actually invaded China itself. An a general war had opened up against China, conducted by the Japanese. And to that extent, I would suggest, in fact, for the Chinese in particular, World War II began in that year and wouldn't really end, well, let's take 1945, but I'd suggest even 1949. At the same time, uh, Japan actually, for a short time, was engaged in conflict with the Soviet Union but suffered a terrible, well, a defeat, let's call it a defeat without exaggerating too much, uh, which happened to coincide with the German-Soviet non-aggression pact that Stalin sprung on the world in August of 1939, and which became a green light, essentially, for the German invasion of Poland. Japan was certainly on the march, but the United States wasn't going to just accept this uh, unilateral, just accept this lying down, um, they were opposed, the United States was opposed to Japanese conquest of China and French Indochina. And on that basis, in July of 1441, 
Franklin Roosevelt basically tightened the blockade on uh, the Japanese, which really, simply put, was a casus bella. It, it provoked the, in effect, the Pearl Har attack on Pearl Harbor and then uh, generalized war between those two powers. But Europe remained the main theater. Britain certainly feared German, Germany's challenge to the, to the British Empire. They feared German domination of Europe. There were those in the, in the British um, political class who sought to appease Chamberlain for a while. They hoped, I think it's true to say, uh, to turn Germany's interests eastward towards the Soviet land. And that was exactly what I think Stalin in particular feared. He feared, as he always had, Anglo-French collusion against the, Soviet against the Soviet Union. So therefore, in September of 1938, when the Munich Agreement was signed without uh, Soviet presence in effect, I think that actually uh, triggered the, well, led, opened the way to the surprise Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, non-aggression pact, pact, which really provided the green light for the, the German invasion of Poland, and then more broadly, European war. In effect, I think Stalin was actually, with that non-aggression pact, buying time for the feared war, but that war came actually more soon than he expected, and that, of course, opened in June 1941 with Operation Barbarossa. I'd suggest that um, it's the Eastern Front in particular, which really is the axis of World War II. There's no doubt about that. That is where Germany conducted its, and its allies conducted its genocidal war against, as they call it, Judeo-Bolshevism, with all the terrible costs that came with that. Essentially, in that regard, the Soviet state was actually fighting for its very existence. But it gained support in that war from, in fact, what might have seemed to be unlikely allies, people who weren't, states that weren't necessarily sympathetic, if not were hostile towards um, the Soviet Union, notably Churchill in Britain and Roosevelt in the United States. To a certain extent, I think those two powers gave some support to that, to that war effort. We can't deny that, but in fact, in terms of blood and war materiel, the Soviet Union really took the brunt of that war. And ultimately, as we know, the Red Army was victorious. After 1930-43, post-Stalingrad, victory for the Red Army, that changed the tide and changed, I think, began the, changed the relationship between, within that Grand Alliance because it really opened up, once the Red Army was on the march, a race for Berlin. That is, US and Britain on the one side, concerned that, in fact, the Red Army would occupy uh, Central and Eastern Europe. And that suggests that, in fact, already the underlying enmity between these powers um, was beginning to emerge. The seeds of a Cold War were already being, so, uh, being sown. Churchill, uh, of course, in the wake, not of course, but did in the wake of the uh, defeat of Germany, uh, very quickly, basically, I think, revealed what had always been his sentiment that 
Bolshevism, communism, the Soviet Union was a threat to Western interests. And it's in March of 46 that he delivers his famous iron, or infamous perhaps, iron curtain speech, which really signals a very dramatic change in terms of relations between these erstwhile allies. So I can quickly turn then to the aftermath of this war. I'd say without a doubt that there was a winner, because a lot of people lost, and a lot of people lost their lives, we certainly know that. I think the United States emerges actually as the major winner from this war. It emerges as a hegemonic, capitalist, nuclear-armed superpower. And because of that, based on a kind of what Roosevelt actually referred to as a sort of anti-imperialist stance, the United States was actually able to and actively worked to displace the old European empires, including its close ally, Britain and at the same time began to incorporate the defeated West Germany and Japan into a Soviet, anti-Soviet alliance. On that basis, we see, as we know, uh, a divided Europe, essentially armed camps, um, a Cold War, which saw on the one hand, the Western powers, Britain um, and the United States in particular, essentially arraying themselves against the Soviet, the Soviet Union, and those countries in Central Europe that it had decided, with the agreement actually of Churchill and so forth, were in its sphere of influence. And I'd suggest, despite the, perhaps because of the kind of military bureaucratic imposition of that Soviet presence in East Central Europe, that this was essentially a defensive step, even though it looks expansionary. It was effectively, from Stalin's perspective anyway, the construction of a glasses against what they feared as a, a revanchist Germany or other Western powers. But we should also remember it's not just Europe. World War II unleashed revolutions and anti-colonial struggles. Yugoslavia, Indonesia, India, Vietnam, and notably, of course, the Chinese Revolution of 19, <coughs> excuse me, 1949. In August of 1945, we shouldn't forget, the United States dropped atomic bombs, two atomic bombs on Japan. And a lot of argument has occurred about why they did that. Often as not, it's justified in terms of ending the Pacific War. But others have suggested, and frankly, I think this bears, it is justified in terms of thinking in these terms. In many respects, it was the opening shot, so to speak, in the Cold War in terms of who was the dominant power in the world, who had the wherewithal to assert their politics in the terms that Clausewitz, for example, suggested continuation of politics by, in this case, atomic means. Thank you, Roger. In cases, though, Cold War in Europe, but hot wars were raging uh, in, in the colonial world, notably Vietnam and Korea. So to conclude, I think we can say that many of the geopolitical cleavages 75 years after this war still remain, maybe are even reasserting themselves. So in that sense, I think it's reasonable to ask, and perhaps, in fact, I think it should be a question for discussion, in what sense did World War II really end or not? Thank you.
Thank you very much, Roger, for, uh, for setting a uh, good backdrop for our further discussion in your chronological overview of the events. So now I'd like to invite uh, Professor Mark Adderley to say a few words to us about the Soviet Union's Second World War's history and memory. Over to you, Mark. Thank you. Um, and thank you for having me. I will sort of begin where Roger ended, I think. So we're 75 years after a victory over Germany and Japan, uh, and some of the effects of the Soviet Union's Second World War are still very much with us. Uh, we can think of the shape of modern Poland, Russia's Kaliningrad region, Finland's borders with Russia, the ongoing dispute of the Kuril Islands, the continued division of Korea, for example. In other respects, however, I think the results of this war have been unmade by subsequent histories. Cities and villages were rebuilt, families reconstituted, armies demobilized. With the notable exceptions mentioned just at, my, at the beginning of my talk, the geopolitical results of this war are largely gone, or at least overlaid with the consequences of later developments. The fall of the Soviet Empire in 1989, the breakdown of the Soviet Union itself in 1991, and the wars of Yugoslav succession between 1991 and 2001 all fundamentally reshaped the Eurasia the war had made. Memory has also transformed. Most of those who experienced the war as adults, as soldiers, as workers, as farmers, as prisoners, as resistance fighters, as collaborators, as perpetrators, as victims, most of them have passed on. Increasingly, World War II is moving from the realm of living memory into that of cultural commemoration. And this commemoration is fractured and uneven. It's splintered along national, political, generational, ethnic, and other lines. Russians continue to remember the great patriotic war of 1941-45, a heroic experience of not only defending the nation, but also saving the world from Nazism. Most historians in the West have accepted today the simple fact that it was the Soviet Union which won the war in Europe. Although some, particularly in Britain, now try to unmake this consensus. In Poland, the Baltic states, and increasingly in the historiography elsewhere, meanwhile, the memory that World War II in Europe began on 1st September 39 with the German attack on Poland is alive and well, together with the recollection that on the 17th of September, the Red Army invaded from the East. During the years of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, so that is 39-41, the Soviet Union did not appear to East Europeans as a force of, liber of liberation or even of anti-fascism, but as, as the totalitarian twin of Nazism, parceling up Eastern Europe, annexing neighboring countries, waging war on Finland. The memory of these dark years continues to cloud Russia's relationship with many of its neighbors, especially the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, but also with Poland. Meanwhile, the wartime experience of Jews in any of what are now the successor states of the Soviet Union was structured by the Nazi genocide and the memory of local collaboration. In this context, similar histories can assume fundamentally different meaning. Jewish and Polish citizens of the dismantled Polish state who were deported by Stalin as class enemies in 1940 or 1941 
and survived the war in the Soviet Union, these Poles and Polish Jews shared the same sufferings. They shared similar deprivations. The survivors and the descendants, however, remember this experience in diametrically opposed ways. To Jews who returned to an anti-Semitic graveyard after the war, this history became one of Holocaust survival, while to Poles, it morphed into a larger story of Polish victimization. Memory in Eastern Europe is thus not a matter of Russia against the rest, as one can sometimes read. The embrace of many in Ukraine, of the Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN, as predecessors of their contemporary state, not only aggravates Russians, whose fathers or grandfathers might have fought them at war's end. It also alienates Poles, who remember the ethnic cleansing of 1943, and it raises alarm bells in Germany or in Israel, countries Kiev might like to have as allies in its contemporary struggle. To further complicate the memories of these events, the Soviets fought their world war not only in Europe, but also in Asia. The centrality of the battles of Lake Khazan and Khalkhingol in 1938 and 1939 for further developments in Asia and the Pacific is at times remembered. Soviet victory in this border war played a crucial role in shifting Japan's focus south and thus bringing in the end the United States into the war, which was a momentous event in the global history of this war. More often forgotten is that for Soviet Koreans, World War II started in 1937 as a result of or in response to the beginning of war in Asia, fearing they might serve as a fifth column for the Japanese imperialists after war broke out in China Stalin had all Koreans deported from the Far East. To Soviet Korean veterans, this war was punctuated by this deportation of 1937 at the one end and the attack on Japan in the summer of 45 on the other, where they often served. The battles in the West, which shaped European memory, were but a distant echo. How should historians deal with these disparate memories? One way, surely, is to take sides with the one or the other narrative. Another is to think of them as something akin to, quote, a cubist image of the Soviet Second World War, to cite my colleague and co-author, Eva Glisic. They give multiple viewpoints, multiple beginnings, and multiple ends. To write a history which synthesizes these into an inclusive narrative will be all but impossible. Too desperate are the perspectives, and too large the blind spots, or even the outright right, and mutually exclusive denials of what took place. But it might be possible to write a history which puts at least some of these partial and partisan memories into tension and into dialogue. Such a history would have to start with the Korean deportations of 1937 and go well beyond 1945 to take into account the war after the war in the Western borderlands, that is in the newly annexed uh, regions of formerly of Poland, as well as the three Baltic republics as well as the various retreats from exposed positions in South, East, and North. It's often forgotten that the Soviets stood actually much further into Asia and also into Europe than where they ended up. So they didn't keep everything they had. It would give the Soviet Union, such a history would give the Soviet Union recognition for winning the war against Hitler without obscuring Stalin's crimes and Soviet aggression in Eastern Europe. It would, it would note the dirty war the Soviets often fought without elevating their enemies, Ukrainian, Latvian, Lithuanian, or Estonian nationalists, to say nothing of the Germans, to hero status. 
It would remind readers that China played a vital role in keeping Japanese ground troops bogged down throughout the war, and hence the Soviet Eastern Front calm until the summer of 1945. It would stress that Russians shouldered the heaviest burden of the fight against Nazism, but also point out that the Red Army was a multinational force. Jews, Poles, Ukrainians, Belarusians, Kazakhs, Koreans, Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians, and many others also died in the struggle to defeat Hitler's Wehrmacht. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mark, um, for reminding how complex and multidimensional uh, World War II was. So now I would like to invite um, Associate Professor Alexei Muraviev, and um, he'll be talking about the Red Machine in Action, Soviet uh, military, um, once again, the Red Machine in Action, Soviet uh, military power, and the Allied victory in World War II. Over to you, Alexei. Um, again, good afternoon to all, and thanks very much, Alexander. I trust you can see my slides. Uh, taken from what uh, Mark and to some extent Roger was saying, effectively what I would like to do and being being strategic and defense studies expert, I want to look at, at one particular aspect of, of the Soviet involvement in the, in the Second World War, something that actually is becoming uh, more and more of a, of a discussion point um, uh, in, in, in recent years, but something that actually began been tested uh, even, even um, back in the 60s and, and the 70s during the years of the Cold War. Let me just share um, um, just a couple of points uh, to, to set the scene. Uh, this is the map that has been taken from one reputable academic source that effectively uh, uh, describes or illustrates and provides some, uh, some uh, um, uh, wording about major battles that were fought on the European front uh, during World War II. And whilst the map is showing uh, that uh, the action didn't just take place in Western Europe and uh, in, in, in Sicily and Italy and in, in Northern uh, Africa, uh, it, did, it, does, it does actually provide an illustration of the campaign that was fought on, on the Eastern Front. If you, if you scroll down, and I'm not sure how well the readers can, can read it, into effectively the description, the, the wording description of um, um, of, of the major phases of the war. There is only one small minor reference to the, the Soviet involvement or the Red Army contribution to, uh, to the Allied effort in defeating uh, the Third Reich. So that raises the first two points that I would like to address in my presentation. First of all, the scale of this contribution as well as the price of victory. And the price of victory, or by the price of victory, I, I mean this ongoing debate on how the Soviets managed to win or secure their part of the war by simply uh, outsmarting and outskilling the Germans or by simply overwhelming them with, with human power and, and paying the, 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 the ultimate cost of simply dumping in bodies and, and by that simply um, uh, over, overrunning the, 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 the machine of the Third Reich. And I'll come back to that in a moment. Similar goes for, uh, for the Pacific Theater and something that uh, already been mentioned by two of my esteemed colleagues, um, a reference to, uh, to the Soviet brief, but, um, uh, uh, but nonetheless contribution to the Allied campaign in the Pacific. As this map once again demonstrates, uh, uh, there is not even a single reference to what was happening in Manchuria and, and, and Korea um, in the final months of, um, 
of uh, 1945, uh, the final year of, of the war in the Pacific. And there's certainly no, no reference or acknowledgement of, of the Soviet involvement uh, in the war. The, the emphasis is entirely on, on, on the Allied um, involvement, the war in the Pacific, the war for the islands and, 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 and maritime battles that were fought across the Pacific Maritime Strategic Theater. So the first point I want to address is obviously with regards to uh, the Allied war in Europe. And this is where I want to, to make the first point, which I think it's really important and often gets missing. There is often a reference that the war between, uh, that the war on the Eastern Front was fought between the Nazi Germany and, and, and the Soviet Union. A correction is, 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 is required. Um, uh, when the Soviets were invaded on June 22, 1941, they were invaded by the combined forces of the Third Reich. It wasn't just the force uh, that comprised, uh, uh, that consisted the Wehrmacht, the German uh, armed forces at that time, but there was an additional uh, firepower provided by uh, uh, what we now would describe as coalition or allied partners. At least half a dozen European countries contributed significant uh, uh, military assets in addition to the Wehrmacht uh, that marched across the, 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 the Soviet boundary. And this is something that is important uh, to, 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 to remember. Overall, again, you know, given time restraints, uh, uh, the presentation uh, comprises a sequence of concluding points, happy to elaborate in, in, in the discussion. Uh, the, the, the ferocity of the fighting, which is illustrated by the intensity of the actual fighting, if you look at, at, the, at the lower end of, of the slides, compared to other uh, major um, um, campaigns that were fought, um, on the European and, and African strategic theaters of war at, at that time um, has, has resulted in the outcome that's been, uh, that's been presented here. Uh, on average, over 70% of Third Reich's, not just Germany, but Third Reich's combat potential was effectively wiped out by, by the Red Army. Uh, that um, uh, is linked to human casualties, um, including the fatalities, um, uh, uh, major military hardware and, and the fight, overall fighting capacity uh, to, to wage war. That is also linked to another question, uh, which, is, uh, which is on the combat, uh, on the, on the combat effectiveness. There's been a lot of uh, recent discussions and debate at, at what, did the, uh, what was the cost of, of, of that victory? What, what did the Soviets pay as their ultimate price? And quite often it's linked to this, to this narrative that the Soviets have lost nearly 27 million people and that was effectively sacrificed, um, um, multiplied through uh, uh, war, um, uh, uh, immediate war losses, but also through um, uh, uh, ongoing uh, political purges, repressions, and so on and so forth. And only my, minor element was attributed to the atrocities carried out by the, uh, by the Nazis and, and their collaborators. However, um, clear analysis by, by applying uh, the military logic and military, um, uh, military analysis to, uh, uh, towards um, uh, available data concerning uh, available troops, uh, reinforcements, uh, fatalities, and associated casualties in, across major battles, as well as the overall outcome of the war, allowed assuming that uh, the, the combat ratio or, or, or the uh, the, the fighting ratio between the Soviet, uh, uh, the Soviet troops, the Red Army, and Wehrmacht, that excludes 
satellite armies that fought alongside, uh, alongside of Vermont was not that much difference. Uh, was not that much different. So some propositions that the Soviets lost five times or four times more than uh, than Vermont simply because they were unskilled, inequipped, uh, lack of strategic vision, lack of operational art, actually uh, um, uh, a false proposition. And that needs to be understood, first of all, in the context of, of how did the war start. The, the, the fundamental difference between the fighting on the Eastern Front and fighting elsewhere when it comes to European and, 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 and uh, African theaters of, of war is, first of all, the scale, the scale of operations. We're talking about, in 1941, the, the, the Soviets were confronted with 4,000-kilometer-long uh, 4, strategic front of, of a combined coordinated assault. Um, the bulk of um, uh, Third Reich's firepower was concentrated for the invasion and execute uh, of the Soviet Union and subsequent execution of Operation Barbarossa. And that obviously resulted, uh, and, and, and there was an element of surprise when the Germany managed to, that when the Germans, the Nazis, the Third Reich managed to outskill the Soviets uh, and achieve uh, operational and tactical levels uh, of, of, of surprise by, uh, by effectively uh, invading and, 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 and catching the Soviets um, in, in, in non-100% prepared stage. And obviously that resulted in, in the most considerable losses that the Soviets have lost in the first two years of the war, um, uh, during which they, uh, they effectively um, lost uh, in excess of 3,000 um, 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 uh, combatants, including uh, over 2 million prisoners of war, the majority of which were taken in the first 12 months of, of the fighting. But 27%, almost 30% of the entire combat losses they, they have taken uh, during the first six months. But that six months also demonstrated that this is not going to be a piece of cake for, for, the, for the experienced Nazi machine. In the first six months of, of the Eastern campaign, uh, the Nazis managed to capture approximately the same size um, uh, in terms of size and scale of, of the territory they were able to secure over approximately three years of fairly uh, uh, methodical um, uh, penetration of Eastern Europe, of the Balkans, uh, of, of, of Western Europe. But the scale of the losses that the German machine have suffered during three years was incomparably lower, four times lower to what they have uh, taken from, from the Soviets in the first uh, six months of, of fighting, which already demonstrated to them that whilst they were winning by skill and by, 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 uh, by superior operational art, uh, uh, it, wouldn't be, it wouldn't be an easy walk uh, for them. And it proved to be uh, quite fatal towards the end. And in fact, if you start looking and, and applying some methodological approaches towards analyzing combat effectiveness uh, on, on, on the basis of available um, uh, forces that were committed to any particular battles, reinforcements that they have received, as well as taking into account total losses. And there is a variety and disparity on how different countries look in, into, into, into calculating them when they would, on one hand, for, for example, in some, in some cases acknowledge just uh, killed in action and injured, but would not be factoring in uh, uh, prisoners of war, mission and action, the ones that would require long-term uh, re recovery and so on and so forth. But if you amalgamate all these figures, 
and break them down into ratio of troops committed to the battle, you would actually see that whilst in the first stages of, of the war, the Red Army have suffered more from, from the Germans towards the end of the war, the, the actual performance was almost on one-on-one -on -one basis and certainly even in the battle for Berlin, which is considered to be one of the bloodiest battles in, 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 in the Second World War, the Soviets were actually outperforming, uh, outperforming the Nazis and, and Allied forces. Another factor that needs to be taken into account is what was available for, for battle. In the majority of cases, because of heavy losses that the Soviets have suffered in the, in the initial years of the war, they were engaged in subsequent battles, including during uh, their uh, strategic counteroffensive, um, uh, by employing units that were understaffed and, uh, and under-equipped compared to similar units employed even in the darkest hour by, by the Wehrmacht and, and Allied forces. So, for example, uh, Nazi divisions would be 100% equipped or uh, at worst 80 to 90% equipped of their uh, required strength, whilst at, at, at best times in, in campaigns of 1944-1945, Soviet divisions were at best equipped by uh, 50 to 60 percent of the required personnel as well as firepower. So that, that actually concludes that the Soviets were winning not sh uh, simply by the numbers, by through applying superior operational art, by applying very skillful the element of surprise, by engaging in successful intelligence gathering, as well as counterintelligence deception operations, catching Germans by, uh, by surprise time and time again, and, and maneuvering forces that were available to them, and by that achieving superior results. The ultimate, uh, the ultimate um, success of, of and, and the contribution that the Soviets made to, work to the Allied effort was clearly demonstrated in the final campaign, which was fought not in Europe, but a few months after the end of hostilities in Europe, um, in, in the Far East, when, when the Soviet Union, as a result of agreement in Yalta, uh, in early 1945, committed to, uh, to uh, a strategic offensive on, on Japan, even though Japan was on, on retreat. There was an expectation that Japan could still carry on with fighting, particularly whilst retaining sizable, sizable portion of their ground forces stationed in, in Manchuria and, and, and parts of China. So for the Allies, eliminating that, uh, that element of the Japanese uh, war machine whilst they were dealing with the Japanese Imperial Navy and the Air Force, as well as garrisons on, on, on a chain of violence, was a, was a matter of strategic importance. And it wasn't just a, a, an, an, easy, an easy drive against the enemy that's been weakened by almost, uh, uh, by almost four years of, of, of never-ending fighting. The Japanese, whilst taking um, losses elsewhere, were still uh, able to retain significant uh, presence in, 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 the, in the Far Eastern strategic theater by the Soviets when they moved in with a superior force, they managed to overwhelm and effectively achieve the campaign. Um, liberating an equivalent of, of, of the size of the uh, entire European continent in, in, in three days and, and, and in, terms of, uh, in terms of combat performance, once again, also, um, uh, also based on on, on, the, sum, uh, on, the, on the calculations of, of combat losses uh, that, that actually demonstrated that by the time the Soviets entered the war in the Pacific, they were by far the most superior conventional military force that actually made 
um, uh, a very significant contribution to the overall Allied effort that helped to conclude the war, uh, the Second World War, in, in, in early September 1945, uh, with, without having any expectations that the war could carry on for at least another uh, one or two years. Certainly with regards to, in, in conclusion, with regards to European strategic theater, the Soviets managed to not just overwhelm uh, the, the um, initial assault by the combined force of the Third Reich, once again, I want to emphasize on that, not just the Nazi Germany, they managed to effectively digest and over, overpower over 70% of the entire uh, fighting potential uh, that uh, the anti-Nazi anti coalition was confronted, and they still made their final contribution to, to the Allied uh, war effort in the Pacific by, by saving thousands of uh, lives of uh, Allied uh, personnel, including uh, Australian servicemen and women that were fighting in that war. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Alexei. Uh, thank you for sharing uh, with us kind of less known facts and the analysis of military aspects of World War II. Now I'd like to um, shift the attention to the Balkans. So we've got um, Janka Associate Professor Slobodan Kovlatov Glava talking about uh, narratives of the victors and losers about uh, World War II in the Balkans. Over to you, Slobodanka. Thank you very much, everybody. Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, refer back to what uh, Roger said, the framework that he uh, gave us for this discussion and I'm the only non-historian present so you will you will not get any figures and facts from me you will get a few facts but mainly impressions impressions which are uh, impressions of how the winners and the losers were treated or perceived uh, after the war so Roger said that the axis of World War II was on the Eastern Front and the Balkans which I'm supposed to talk about they were a small gloss a, a small prologue uh, to that axis because uh, it, I'm showing you a picture here of what the Balkans look like over 50 or 70 years. Nothing has changed outside the big cities. So this is somewhere in the Banat, uh, somewhere in the 60s, but it still looks like that today. So this is the reality uh, of, of the Balkans. It's still like that in the countryside uh, in many places. The uh, prologue to uh, the big uh, axis of war in, in uh, uh, Operation Barbarossa by the Germans uh, was this little country called Yugoslavia, Royalist Yugoslavia, um, which uh, was bombed by Germany, by the Axis powers on the 6th of April 1941. And I know the story of this day so well because my parents lived through it and I was told this story every birthday or every anniversary the story was trotted out. The whole family was there, uh, you know, was involved in this uh, uh, bombing and uh, it became a sort of family me memory and part of the family lore. Um, so the uh, the bombing of Belgrade was preceded by uh, the Putsch, the uh, March 27th uh, Putsch, uh, by a group of Serbian Air Force uh, officers led by uh, um, Marshal Simovic um, uh, against the signing of the Tripartite uh, Pact or uh, Yugoslavia's accession to the Tripartite Pact by the government of Dragiša Cvetković, who was uh, acting uh, in, the, in the government of uh, under the regency of Prince Paul, because uh, King Peter II was a minor in, 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 at this time. He was 17 years old. And the putsch uh, was uh, staged by royalists, uh, not by the partisans, but the, parties, the members of the Communist Party, which was outlawed in Yugoslavia uh, in 1920, 
um, th they uh, were um, on the streets and, and they were um, pro protesting and, and cry crying. And there was this uh, slogan, uh, better war than the pact, Bolerat nego pact. Uh, so Prince Paul resigned the regency and uh, he resigned, the regency was abolished and a new government uh, of uh, Simovic uh, was uh, created uh, in exile. Si Simovic impersonated um, the, uh, the, the king's uh, speech and uh, um, a proclamation to the people and the 17-year-old king was pronounced to be of age to head the national unity government in exile in London. Uh, in the country, in Belgrade, Milan Nedic, the former chief of the general staff of the Royal Yugoslav Army, became the prime minister of the so-called government of national, uh, national salva salvation, which was a government actually controlled by the occupying German forces. It's called the puppet government, but you know, what can you do if you are being uh, controlled by an occupational force? They didn't call it puppet government in Switzerland, did they? Uh, anyway, um, uh, this is the, the king in... Um, in, in London with, uh, on the left, uh, 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 General Dusan Simovic uh, in June of 1941. Uh, the king is 17 years old here. You can see that he's just a boy, a schoolboy. Now the, the German occupation, with the German occupation on the 6th of April 1941, uh, started the dismantling of Yugoslavia and uh, the formation of different groups the formation of different groups, guerrilla groups, and the formation of the independent state of Croatia, whole territory, uh, the Endeha, as well as the territory of the military commander of Serbia, uh, which is occupied mainly, uh, or it's occupied by the Germans, but the guerrilla group uh, active there is Dimitri Ljotic, the, the so-called Ljoticetsi. So uh, the, um, we have, uh, the Yugoslav government in exile. We have the government of national uh, salvation in Belgrade. We have the independent state of Croatia established on the 10th of April, 1941, uh, which lasted until, sorry, something is wrong with my mouse. I'm sorry to um, do this to everyone. Which lasted till the 8th of May, 1945, headed by Ante Pavelic. So some people are saying that this was not really uh, Yugoslavia was not entering a world war, it was entering a civil war. Because the main fighting was be between the various guerrilla groups uh, to which one could also uh, count the Croatian Domobrani, the Croatian uh, Ustashi, and here, is the, here are the Serbs, Draža Mihailović, who uh, formed a group called the Illegal Chetniks. So these were Chetnik detachments of the Yugoslav army, all, also known as the Yugoslav army in the homeland or uh, the Ravnagora movement, because Ravnagora is a, a place in Serbia where uh, Draja established his uh, headquarters. The Chetniks made a number of agreements with the Germans in 1943 by passing the Serbian puppet government, which resulted in Nedic and his regime losing what support it had left amongst the people. Many members of Nedic's administration, including government officials, as well as military and police officers, made secret deals with the Chetniks themselves. So there were a lot of the question of collaborations and who collaborated with whom and who made agreements with whom is, a, is fraught with uh, tremendous controversy uh, to this day. So uh, even this is too much for me to say. So maybe you could just erase this from, from your memory. So... Dimitri Ljotic, uh, who was the leader of the so-called legalized uh, Chetniks, um, he was um, a, a Serbian intellectual. Uh, to call him 
uh, a fascist is too simplistic according to the historian Jozo Tomasevic. And just incidentally, after the war, um, and after people were released from uh, POW camps, many of the supporters of um, Dmitry Ljotic found their way into Australia. And I knew some of the families in Melbourne. We went to the same church, the ser same Serbian church in, 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 uh, uh, in Melbourne. And these people were uh, people from the countryside, mainly sort of provincial intellectuals, uh, who had to join some group which was not the Nazis and which was not the Ustashi. So many of these um, uh, groups, guerrilla groups, the Chetniks and, uh, and, and the Ljotic uh, groups, they, they were uh, uh, created under the pressure of not going with, with the enemy, not, not going with the Ustashi. Uh, now the partisans were a multi-ethnic group and uh, they formed the National Liberation pr uh, Front or uh, in Serbia, Serbo-Croatian, uh, Narodno Slobodilačka Vojska. They organized the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, which was extremely well organized in, already in the 30s underground. Uh, it had lots of networks. In fact, that, one of the reasons why they were so strong as a group during the war uh, is because they already had the apparatus, whereas none of the other groups had that. No one was prepared for war. None of the Yugoslav monarchist uh, uh, groups, Chetniks, Ljotic, uh, whatever, the National Army, they were not prepared for war. Uh, but these guys were prepared for war, and uh, they create, the Communist Party of Yugoslavia organized the so-called Vojni Komiteti, um, <clears throat> um, uh, army uh, committees, uh, and they did that. They didn't believe the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact of 1939. They, they were clever. They read through it and they thought they better be prepared. This is not going to last. Um, so there was a partisan uprising mainly in Western Serbia with partisan headquarters um, in uh, commanding uh, 14,000 fighters um, in 23 local squads and so on. So the other group which was formed on the former territory of uh, uh, Royal Yugoslavia uh, was the uh, new state of Croatia, uh, the um, independent state of Croatia, uh, also called Ustashi, and there was a subgroup called Domobrani, Home Guard. Uh, it was uh, the Croatian revolutionary movement um, uh, covering uh, the territories of Croatia, Dalmatia, parts of Vojvodina and, and uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina. And they had an explicit Nazi racial ideology uh, and uh, 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 they, they fought uh, both uh, the partisans and uh, the uh, Serb local populations. They, they were organized, they had the status of, uh, of, of kind of uh, a country. Uh, now that's, that's the context, that's, those are the participants. Now how, are they, how do they pan out during the war and after the war? Well, during the war we have uh, the narrative of Western diplomacy. Uh, here is the king, uh, he is uh, sheltered by the Western powers in, in London. Uh, he is uh, up to a point uh, fated by the, uh, by, by the uh, Western allies. Uh, here he is with Churchill and Roosevelt. Uh, while the Western uh, uh, powers uh, play a waiting game, especially Churchill, playing a game of seeing who is going to um, uh, uh, make good in the Balkans. Um, then we have uh, the Serbian side, the Draža Mihailović camp, and the narrative of the victors actually starts with the trial of Draža Mihailović uh, after the war. Uh, he was uh, at, the, at the very end of the war. He was uh, 
uh, captured four months before he was executed on the 10th of June 1946 uh, with uh, eight other Chetniks. He was executed very close to the king's palace uh, in Topchider in Lysichy Potok. Uh, and um, you can see here that his trial was something like the Nuremberg trials. It emulated the Nuremberg trials. So this was the narrative of the victorious partisans after the war. And all the textbooks were full of you know, the, uh, the, 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 whole, um, the whole narrative uh, after the war in uh, Tito's Yugoslavia was that these were criminals, these were war criminals, uh, whereas uh, uh, Draža Mihailović, as you can see here, looks weak, uh, looks defeated, and um, uh, it ha has really a, a, a terrible end. And um, uh, he, he is, however, rehabilitated, the, the Americans award Mihailovich posthumously the Legion of Merit for the rescue of Americans during World War II. Uh, this is, um, uh, th this honor is uh, accepted by his daughter Gordana in uh, 2005 during the Bush administration. In 2004, the current Serbian government, you know, the post-communist Serbian government, passes a law uh, that grants partisans and Chetniks equal place in Serbian history. And in 2006, uh, the law is passed to rehabilitate former Chetniks. So that's the end of this narrative. Now, a little bit on a lighter note, I only spent my first 10 years in, in Tito's Yugoslavia. After that, my parents took me away and we came on, on a journey of migrations. But even while I was a child in Yugoslavia, we all sang this song. <laughs> I even had a bariak like this. I had a little little toy, a toy, uh, just like this little girl, a boy here. And I walked around the apartment of my parents singing this song. Now, I don't know if it's going to work, but it was the song of, we are Tito's young uh, army. Uh, our whole people are with us. Uh, our country is free and let Tito live. Uh, well, let, let Tito be healthy. I don't know if I can play this. I, I couldn't play it before on, on my, you said you could, Alexander, but I can't, I can't play it. I don't yeah, know well, if we have time. Yeah, well, let's, let's move on probably. Okay, this. let's move on. Okay. Uh, now the popular uh, imagination was also filled with uh, narratives about NOB, the Narno Slobodilaška Borba, the, the national liberation um, um, battle, the battle for national liberation. And you have these two famous films, which were co-produced uh, and uh, with uh, co-produced with, with uh, foreign companies. And um, the, the films are um, about the two uh, major offensives fought by the partisans in the Second World War against the Germans. Um, the Battle of Sutjeska, the film was made in 1973, um, was the most expensive film ever made in Yugoslavia, based on the fifth offensive, which was the greatest engagement of the Yugoslav partisans during the war. And the screenwriter for that was Sergei Bondarchuk, amongst others. Um, the other film was uh, called uh, The Battle of uh, Neretva. And as you can see, Yul Brynner on, the, on this. So uh, a lot of money was thrown into this uh, kind of um, uh, narrative of knob. It was also part of the school syllabus, uh, part of the history and so on. Uh, now, the, the narrative of the Western Allies um, starts with, um, with uh, Tito after 1948. After Tito breaks with Stalin, 
the so-called Infom Bureau, and and uh, uh, this this aligns himself from the Soviet Union for the next five years at least until Khrushchev. Um, uh, the he is welcomed welcomed in the West, and he is fated everywhere. As you can see, Tito in London in 1953, uh, Tito in almost a filial relationship with with. Uh, Churchill, this is in 1960, where Tito is hosting Churchill somewhere on his island of Brioni. And uh, he, he, he is also uh, visited by many celebrities. So if you say, Roger, <laughs> that the, so, that the, uh, the uh, winners of World War II uh, was America. <laughs> Just have a look at Tito. In every Yugoslav's opinion, uh, Tito was a definite winner of World War II. <laughs> so here he is with Sophia Loren and Elizabeth Taylor. These were all his guests. He had this big yacht called Galeb, uh, the Seagull, and he had this uh, island in the Adriatic, on the Adri in the Adri on the in the Adriatic, and he welcomed uh, celebrity visitors. And uh, he he was. Uh, playing the role of uh, a, a gracious uh, host. And here he is with other friends, Tito with his friends, uh, the non-aligned movement friends, Nasser. This is in Belgrade. This is the, behind him is the Parliament House of Belgrade. Here he is with the, uh, his other friend, revolutionary friend, uh, uh, Castro. And here is the non-aligned movement. Uh, this must be the Brioni shot when, when Tito hosted it. First it was in Bandung, but I don't think this is the Bandung conference. This is when Tito hosted it. And finally, uh, here we have Tito with democracy and capitalism. Um, we, all, we all know how it ended. It ended okay for him until 1980, but it didn't end so well for the rest of the country after that, going into another civil war. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Slobodanka, for, uh, um, for sharing us some of the uh, knowledge about World War II on Balkans. You know, not that much known about it uh, to the broader audience. So a bit of a uh, help to bridge the gap. And um, we've got um, the final speaker for today is uh, Dr. Leonid Petrov, who will shift the attention uh, of World War II into Asia and his topic would be World War II in North um, East Asia. Has it really ended? So over to you, Leonid. Thank you, Alexander. I hope you and everyone can see my slide and hear me. And I would like to thank the Australasian Association for Communist and Post-Communist Studies for bringing up this wonderful idea to commemorate the event, uh, uh, which happened 75 years ago. But also in my presentation, I would like to talk more about what uh, happened um, later, a few months or even years. Uh, that's why I called my presentation uh, uh, the end or really has, it, has the World War II ever ended and how it happened in Northeast Asia. But Northeast Asia shows us uh, many, uh, poses many questions um, which haven't been answered yet. Um, in my presentation, uh, I probably will, should start with uh, trying to pinpoint the starting mo moment of uh, World War II in Northeast Asia. Uh, my colleagues, uh, Roger, uh, Mark, and Alexei have already uh, mentioned the events of, uh, of the hostilities. Um, Mark tried to um, present the uh, multitude of narratives 
Second World War, uh, like the Soviet Koreans who were um, deported from the Russian Far East, Central Asia. Uh, it started in uh, September 1937. Um, I'll also talk about the uh, final moments of the war, or at least supposed to be the final moments, um, because it was not just 1945 when Japan surrendered, but the peace treaty was signed in 1951. And still we'll be talking about the legacies. And I think that uh, since my presentation is the last in this row, so uh, this will encourage more of the questions and answers and discussions. So I'll try to be as provocative as possible. So I put the rising sun flag here, which is still um, uh, very much legal and official in Japan, has been around 4,000 years and um, after the Second World War, it still reminds um, the neighbors of Japan the, uh, the horrors of Second World War, but in Japan it's, um, it's still official and even South Korean, South Korean government uh, complained that this flag was supposed to be accepted during the uh, Olympics, Tokyo Olympics 2020, uh, which was postponed. So will it happen next year? We will see. So first of all, um, when did the uh, war start in Northeast Asia? Uh, perhaps we can uh, attribute it to the Manchurian uh, incident, the Mukden incident, uh, which was engineered by the Japanese Imperial Army near the city of Mukden, uh, Shenyang these days, uh, in Manchuria, um, which permitted Japan to uh, turn the whole province of Manchuria into a so-called independent state, the Manju Go. Um, even the empire, emperor of, of, of Man Manchuria was instilled uh, at that time. Um, this, caused, this move caused Japan the seat in the League of Nations. Actually, Japan um, uh, withdrew uh, from the League of Nations, uh, which actually um, we can make a comparison with the Soviet Union, uh, which was expelled from the League of Nations in 1939 after, these, after the uh, war against Finland. Right. If, it's, if it was not 1931, perhaps it was 1937, um, uh, the Marco Polo bridge incident, Blue Hotel uh, incident near Beijing, where the Imperial Army clashed with um, Chinese um, Nationalist Revolutionary Army. Um, and um, the incident opened the gate of uh, uh, further ex Japan Japanese expansion in continental uh, China. Uh, after that, uh, the atrocities of Nanjing and Shanghai happened. Um, and perhaps uh, many historians actually agree that uh, World War II in Asia started in July 37. Or we might attribute the beginning of hostilities to the attack, uh, Japanese uh, naval uh, and aerial attack on Pearl Harbor, the U.S. territory in Hawaii in 19. Um, U.S. at that moment had been the um, neutral state, and since then, war in the Pacific started. But probably uh, we should not forget about the clashes between uh, the Red Army and the Japanese uh, Imperial Army in Inner Mongolia, um, the 1939 Halkingol uh, clashes could also be um, seen as the beginning of war in, uh, in Northeast Asia, 1939 uh, in Europe, 1939 in, uh, in East Asia. So how did it go? 
Well, Japan had different, uh, different expansion doctrines, the so-called Northern Expansion do Doctrine, which almost ended and was forgotten after this defeat in Halkin Gol um, in Eastern uh, Outer Mongolia, uh, with, uh, where Japanese army realized that uh, pr progression towards Siberia, um, Siberian oil was the target of, um, of the Japanese uh, Imperial Army. Uh, was not going to end up well, particularly in winter time. And that's why after 1939, the so-called Southern Expansion uh, Doctrine was adopted as um, the uh, official direction uh, for the Japanese Navy. And uh, until the end of the war, until 1945, the Pacific Theater was the main um, stage where, uh, where American uh, Australian Allied forces uh, participated. Soviet Union was, had the neutrality pact with Japan, so there was no uh, Soviet uh, presence in this theater until the very last moment. So I won't go into the details of the Second World War since my presentation is about the ending. So let's try to uh, find the exact time the war ended. Well, the U.S. Uh, bombing, nuclear bombing of Japan, which happened twice on the 6th and 9th of August, Hiroshima and Nagasaki three days later, uh, actually uh, prompted the events uh, which were unfolding very, very quickly. Uh, we saw that the Soviet invasion of Manchuria started the same day, um, coincided with the second uh, bombing, nuclear bombing, when the Soviet army um, advanced towards uh, Manchuria, Inner Mongolia, Southern Kurils, and Northern Korea. The expectations were that um, the Soviet army would occupy Manchuria and Korea and participate in the joint occupation of Japan, Japanese islands. But something happened. And it was 19, uh, 1945, 15th of August, when Hirohito, Japanese emperor, um, suddenly uh, addressed the nation uh, with his rescript about the acceptance of Potsdam Declaration and um, unconditional surrender uh, was promised. Uh, some historians actually question how come that um, Japan, which actually promised another uh, few years of uh, fight against the allied forces in the Pacific and uh, mainland China, suddenly decided to surrender. And well, some historians offer the, offer the answer. These were the Soviet excesses in Manchuria and in Northern Korea, which um, led the Japanese leadership to think twice about joint occupation and continuing struggle against the Allied forces. It looked like what happened in Manchuria and in Northern Korea, and Americans, I remind you, um, suggested uh, to divide uh, Korea along the 38th parallel. In order to, officially, there was an explanation to prevent Russian excesses uh, in that area. So suddenly Americans offered the joint occupation of Korea, Manchuria would be left um, in the hands of the Soviet army, and Japan was supposed to be totally occupied by the US forces. So some suspect that uh, Hirohito simply decided that it's better to surrender to Americans instantly rather than to fight and experience the joint occupation um, of the Japanese islands. So um, we can see that Americans and Russians uh, were the dominating forces 
in um, in, in North uh, East Asia, uh, Chinese Republican Army uh, was together was well, sharing fighting the, against the Japanese together with, um, with the communist uh, army of Mao Zedong. And later, this struggle turned into the civil war in China, which hasn't finished yet. We have two Chinese states and we have two Korean states in North and South Korea who don't recognize each other. So that's why I think that we should look at the end of the, start uh, looking for the end of the Second World War, not in the uh, surrender or Hirohito's uh, rescript about the acceptance, but probably in the, um, and not even in the Japanese instrument of surrender, which was signed in September um, on, on board of American Missouri uh, ship um, with the presence of uh, Japanese foreign minister who signed um, the instrument of surrender and um, Supreme Commander of Allied Forces, Douglas MacArthur, uh, accepted it. Um, officially, this unconditional surrender to the Allied powers is uh, treated as the end of World War II um, in, in Asia, uh, because Japanese Imperial Headquarters promised to uh, surrender and armed forces, um, every, all controls, uh, every um, assets, were supposed to stop and cease fighting. But what happened next um, is actually opening, uh, opening the question of end of uh, Second World War to, again, to various interpretations. Because the Cold War started immediately. Um, the former allies already looked at each other as uh, foes and um, two Chinas and two Koreas turned into the civil wars. And during the Korean War, uh, which started in 1950, um, the San Francisco Peace Treaty was uh, summarily prepared. Um, 51 countries were invited to participate in, uh, in the San Francisco Peace Treaty signing. Uh, but China and Korea were not invited because uh, apparently the organizers of the treaty um, didn't know whether to invite um, People's Republic of China representative or Republic of China representative, whether it's going to be the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, which was fighting the UN troops and UN command on the peninsula uh, with the help of Chinese people, uh, people volunteers army, or is it, was it going to be the Republic of Korea representative? So they decided to postpone um, the uh, signing of peace uh, with these four countries or two countries, depending on what was going to happen. So ultimately on the uh, 8th of September, 1951, 48 countries decided to uh, sign the peace treaty with Japan, uh, but it, were, it wasn't Soviet Union, Poland, and Czechoslovakia. A few countries were not invited to the um, treaty to San Francisco uh, at all, but it was um, there were a number of issues which um, Alexei Gromyko, uh, the, uh, the, the, the future uh, foreign minister of the Soviet Union, um, listed during the, uh, during the um, uh, conference, um, just a few hours before the document was signed, he said that the treaty did not recognize many things, including the Soviet sovereignty of, at that time it was South, South, South Sakhalin and Kuril Islands, while later on the Soviet Union managed to uh, sort this out with Japan, but it didn't happen until 1956. Um, also, China's sovereignty uh, over Taiwan was not clarified. Japan, uh, Japan simply 
uh, renounced its uh, possession of Taiwan and the Pescatore Islands, Bradley Islands, Paracel Islands. But these days we have uh, big fights in South China Sea about, about these very islands. And also the, um, I'll return this slide, the Korea sovereignty over uh, cer certain islands or, or certain uh, ter territories like Tokto or Takishima was not really specified in um, the San Francisco Peace Treaty. So um, to sum up my presentation, I'd like to say that the legacy of San Francisco Peace Treaty is um, very uh, controversial. We see that um, mainland China and, and, and Taiwan, the province of China, still fighting with Japan over the Senkaku Diaoyuta Island, the Pinnacle Islands. Uh, also, the no, like North and South Korea still claim the uh, possession of Liangkurt Rock, uh, which is Tokto Island uh, known in Korea and Takishima Island known in Japan. Still, the issues being brought to uh, many international uh, courts. And U.S. troops remain in Okinawa despite of the ending of uh, U.S. military occupation, which happened uh, immediately after the signing of the San Francisco Peace Treaty in 19. 52, it um, came into power. So U.S. troops are still in uh, in Ryukyu Islands, and um, and Russia is still um, discussing the future peace treaty with Japan, but it's linked to the possession of disputed South Korean islands, which hasn't haven't been included into the San Francisco Peace Treaty. Even the memory and legacy of the uh, of the uh, human rights abuse and, and sexual slavery and so-called comfort women still claim compensation from Japan despite, despite uh, of the uh, certain article which uh, mentioned the reparations that Japan would pay to the uh, victims uh, of the Second World War. So in many ways, I believe that uh, this treaty in San Francisco signed in 1951 did not finish the war and still we have many different interpretations of what happened during the Second World War, even and even how it started, so it's a work for historians uh, to um, explain and interpret these issues. But history in East Asia is a very combustible uh, area. Um, so historical wars, not the real, you know, hot war or cold war. We have history wars these days, which continue between China and Japan, between North and South Korea uh, and its neighbors. And um, I believe that cooperation is needed, uh, not only historians, but uh, politicians and also the activist groups also uh, must uh, tone down the aggression and animosity and look at the uh, days and lessons of the past in a more mindful way. Thank you for your attention and I will stop here. Thank you very much, Leonid, um, for sharing with us intricacies of uh, the end of World War II in Asia, which again, uh, probably I, I speak for myself, I didn't know much about and uh, uh, was very useful and thought provoking. So it's a time for a question. We've got a couple of questions uh, posted on Q&A, oh, well, three now. So the first question was from Natalia uh, Batova and I think it's addressed to Mark. So Mark mentioned the problem of different narratives how close can we get to marrying them? Mark, over to you. Um, well, I guess we can try, but, um, and I, ha I have tried in a book which will come out next year, 
but it is very difficult um, given that uh, the politicization of these narratives in today's Eastern Europe and um, Asia is such that pretty much whatever you say, you will, um, you will insult somebody. <laughs> and very often you will insult multiple parties. Uh, so it will, uh, it's, I think it's very hard to not be controversial about this war. But I guess one can try if one shifts perspectives and tries to tell that story from not just one standpoint, but try to, you know, um, see it from, you know, as I try to sketch very briefly in the, in the example of the, the um, Polish deportees where the story simply, you know, that they, they get deported by, by Stalin or by the Soviets on order by Stalin as, as class enemies, essentially, and then uh, get amnestied, quote unquote, uh, in the summer of 1941 after the Germans invade and the Soviets find themselves on the, on the side of, um, of the uh, exile government in the Polish exile government in uh, London. Uh, to, so, to, to Jewish Poles, that history is, while they remember the suffering and the injustice and so on, the overarching story is uh, one of having inadvertently been saved by Stalin from Hitler, right? To Polish, if you then shift the same, it's basically the same story uh, for non-Jewish Poles, uh, the implication of that story is simply completely different, right? Uh, and you can do that with nearly every uh, every turn of that history. If you shift the perspectives between different groups, uh, the story changes. So one can try that, but you know, it would become a very big book. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. Um, I can add something, Alexei, uh, Alexander, on because I remember Natalia was asking this question. I promised I uh, I will sure. try to address it in my presentation. And just one thing I would like to add, you know, how can we resolve these historiographical battles? Well, historians have to talk to each other. They shouldn't be sitting in the ivory tower and writing inflammatory, you know, uh, kind of abusive uh, um, uh, articles and books offending uh, each other and people they represent. They have to have joint conferences, uh, webinars. They have to write uh, joined, who authored books like they, uh, it was done between Chinese, Japanese, and Korean historians a few years ago. Uh, the book was called The History Which Opens the Future. History Which Opens the Future. They addressed the um, very controversial points of the past, of a particular period of history, and it was quite well accepted in three countries. Thank you, Leonid. Um, the second question came from um, Atashe Alexei Katkov, and it was a, a question to, to Roger. Roger, how do you see the impact of the Munich Treaty of 1938 on the start of World War II? Wasn't it the Munich Treaty that made the war inevitable when the appeasement policy went too far and the League of Nations proved ineffective? The Nazi Germany could have been stopped. This Czechoslovakia had more divisions, was a member of Little Antante. Um, Sudan, Denland was uh, well fortified and the USSR was ready to help. It's no coincidence that Churchill thought 
Neville Chamberlain after Munich betrayal. You were given the choice between the war and dishonor. You choose dishonor and you will have the war. Roger? Yes. You. Um, thank you. Thank you, Alexander. Um, and thanks for that question. Um, actually, Alexei uh, Muravyev uh, contributed to a response to that question himself, uh, taking a asking, well, do we start with Munich or do we go back to the Spanish Civil War? I would certainly say that the Munich Agreement uh, was a decisive turning point from the Soviet perspective because they were actually left out of the negotiations as were the Czechs themselves. And as I said in my presentation, uh, Stalin always had a deep suspicion of uh, the French and the British in particular. His attitudes waxed and waned in relation to Germany, but of course they became, he became, or Moscow became increasingly uh, suspicious, well, concerned about uh, the German military, German military armament and so forth. And therefore, for having tried, I think, on the part of uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin to form some kind of collective security agreement with uh, Britain and France, whatever concerns, reservations, suspicions Moscow had about um, the intentions, particularly of Britain and also France. The very fact that it was excluded from that process meant, I think, that that hastened a determination. In fact, hastened a determination on the part of uh, Moscow to look elsewhere, to find another way out of what they thought by this time was more or less inevitable war. Not forgetting, of course, that Stalin had thought that war was likely back in 1931. He predicted that. So he was expecting uh, at some stage a major conflict uh, coming out of the West. Perhaps in the first place, France and Britain, uh, increasingly from Germany. But if I can just step back a little bit, I, mean, I think it is true. It's right to bring in the, the, the Spanish Civil War too. I mean, one could take this uh, these causal links, if you like, back quite a long way. But um, the Spanish Civil War itself is interesting because it, I think, also, does, I mean, the, the, the Stalin, for his own reasons, was supporting, uh, in his own way, uh, the Spanish Republican uh, government, um, which was under attack from both, Frank, uh, not only from Franco, but uh, the Republican government, but also from forces from uh, fascist, excuse me, fascist Germany and fascist Italy. But there was a so-called non-intervention pact agreement established, which meant, oh, nobody could intervene, uh, which was really driven by Britain and France. And that only fueled, I think, Soviet suspicions about the real intentions of, um, of Britain. Could they be relied upon to be a, an ally? I think, though, when it comes to Munich, that's a turning point. Uh, we, they can't be trusted no matter what they say. Um, and it's interesting, in fact, that Churchill's cited here because I think there's a, there's a split 
that you know, I don't really have the details about, but it seems apparent to me that it was a split within the English British political class about, well, who's our immediate enemy, if you like? And as I said earlier, Churchill was no lover of, of the Soviet Union, and, uh, but he could see, I think, much more clearly than, say, Chamberlain or, and people of his ilk, that in fact, the most immediate threat to the British Empire was uh, Germany itself, and he was prepared to sup with the devil, if you like, in a grand alliance uh, against Germany. But always, I think, with a sense of, well, um, you know, we can let, this can be a temporary arrangement until we beat um, our major opponent, that is Nazi Germany. Thank you, Roger. Um, the next question is for uh, Slobodanka. I can see the need for a nuanced reconsideration of Mikhailovich, but weren't Nedic and Ljotic virulent anti-Semites? Well, I would like to know your source because I uh, have heard that also, but it's sort of like a Wikipedia uh, judgment and it's not exactly a historical judgment. Um, I can't answer your question specifically because as I said, I'm no historian, but there was no anti-Jewish sentiment uh, as as far as I know, and the people I know, uh, know uh, in, uh, in Belgrade, either before the Second World War or after the Second World War, um, there was a, a Jewish synagogue, and this was not destroyed by anyone. This was not destroyed by Nedic or by Ljotic. Uh, the Jewish community did not go underground because of the Serbs. It went underground because of the Nazis who were occupying Belgrade, and who, ha who were rounding up uh, various people, including Jews, from time to time. There was uh, Nedic, I, I haven't read anything by Nedic, which would uh, speak to your thesis. I haven't read anything by uh, Ljotic, uh, which would speak to your thesis. However, there, these people had sort of um, uh, these kinds of uh, theories about uh, nationalism, about uh, one's own, about the soil, you know, Heidegger was like that too. You know, Heidegger had this uh, Erde uh, uh, theory and uh, it, it can be interpreted as a, as a Nazi, uh, it can feed into the Nazi ideology, but it, it was a widespread thing in the 1920s and 1930s and even in the 19th century. I mean, Dostoevsky is accused of being a nationalist with his Pochva, you know, so it was along, I can see it along those lines. I can't see that they were virulent uh, anti-Semites. Uh, I'm only speaking because there is, there is no anti-Semitism amongst the Serbs. They, they lived along the Serbs for, um, I mean, the, the Jewish community was totally integrated um, amongst the Serbian community. They're, they're Serbian Jews. Thank you, thank you, Slobodanka. So there's a question to uh, Alexei. Could you say a little bit more about Six Nation Coalition that fought alongside Germany against the USSR? How significant were they in terms of numbers? Did they fight effectively? Were their morale considerably lower than of uh, the Germans, especially towards the end of the war? Sure, and I'm bringing back uh, the slide that uh, kind of lists uh, uh, the countries that I identified as part of that coalition. Uh, first of all, thank you for the question. Uh, with regards to um, uh, understanding the composition of, uh, of uh, the coalition or the allied forces that invaded the Soviet Union. There are two elements there. One is 
there were international units um, under the operational command of the Wehrmacht, but they were primarily under, actually, um, uh, under weapon assess, uh, which set in some way in been, been a semi-autonomous force. So uh, operationally, they, um, at, at some point in time, they were under Wehrmacht command, but they were also exercising a degree of autonomy. So the, the majority of Nazi collaborators drawn from a variety of occupying nations uh, were actually enlisted in, in the German, uh, either, either in the German armed forces or, or predominantly in weapon assets. But there were also standalone military units drawn, um, either committed by, uh, uh, by countries that had allied relationship with the Third Reich or, or, or drawn from the volunteers. So for example, Italy contributed a number of field armies to, to the fighting on, on the Eastern Front. And in fact, uh, the Italians and, and the Hungarians represented the Achilles foot for, uh, for, 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 um, uh, for the Germans in the Battle for Stalingrad. I mean, a common knowledge is that the Soviets encircled two German armies in the Battle of Stalingrad with a total strength of about 300,000 personnel, and that's what really uh, uh, the, 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 the Soviets managed to, 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 uh, to achieve there. The reality was that um, there were several Italian and, and Hungarian armies uh, that also were part of the overall Battle of Stalingrad. And actually, in fact, the Soviets were targeting them given the fact that they were far, far more weaker, uh, uh, poor equipped, and, and certainly exercised far, far less morale compared to German forces. So there was, there was obviously foreign presence in the Battle for Stalingrad. In the Battle for Moscow, uh, Wehrmacht was supported by a voluntary army corps drafted from volunteers um, uh, comprising um, uh, French citizens. So there was a bit of an irony when uh, back in 1812, Napoleon marched onto, onto Moscow in, in charge of an international invasion force. And then um, a couple of centuries later, the French joined the Nazis in, well, not the French, but a number of French collaborators that form independent uh, foreign legion joined the Nazis in, in, and took part in the battle for Moscow. Italy contributed at least one field division, the so-called Blue Division, which took part in the siege of Leningrad, was actually accused of, um, um, of, of ransacking um, Soviet treasures, uh, particularly on the outskirts of, of, of Leningrad. Finland com committed a number of divisions that also took part in the siege of Leningrad, also drawn on, on, on their, on their um, hostility towards the Soviets as a result of the so-called Winter War. Uh, that they have um, uh, they have lost uh, in uh, a year earlier. So these were the countries uh, that you can see on on the screen that uh, committed significant independent combat formations from field division up upwards. Uh, so that needs to be taken into account with regards to understanding the, the combined invasion force and the combined adversary force that the Red Army had had to deal with. And I said there were smaller scale collaborations, uh, but uh, they were certainly part of, um, uh, they, were, they were made part of, of the Wehrmacht. I mean, for example, there were about one, one million ethnic Russian collaborators uh, that formed a number of divisions, but they were all uh, enlisted uh, under, under Wehrmacht or Waffen-SS. 
Uh, same goes for some Ukrainian collaborators, uh, Belgians, and, 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 and the list goes on. So uh, that's, that's what I meant when I talked about uh, the allied, uh, and, uh, allies to, to the Third Reich. I hope that answers the question. Thank you very much, Alexei. Um, Alexei, if you can answer the, uh, there's one more question from, uh, uh, from Anna to you by typing, but um, I will exercise my moderator's right to ask the last question and will be addressed to Leonid. Leonid, would you elaborate quickly on um, why Poland and Czech Republic didn't sign San Francisco Agreement? Well, I think it's pretty obvious. The, uh uh, communist uh, bloc um, already was being created at that time, 1951. Um, Cold War was already reaching its height. The Korean War was um, probably the hot episode of this Cold War drama. Um, but, um, well, Czech, Czech and, uh, and Polish republics, well, they were there, they refused to sign to support the Soviet Union because the USSR was not happy with uh, this arrangement. Um, the uh, draft um, of the San Francisco Peace Treaty was obviously done without consideration of Soviet uh, yeah, geopolitical interests, inc including the Kuril Islands. And we remember as a result of, of that, so now the whole Sea of Okhotsk now remains the, um, the lake of um, of Pacific, uh, uh, Russian Pacific fleet. So of course the Soviet Union didn't want to look uh, lonely in this process and uh, Poles and Czechs were conveniently there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Leonid. So um, uh, the time is up, we're a little bit over in fact. So I would like to now conclude the event today and I'll do that by quoting um, extract from, uh, from a speech of UN General Secretary, Antonio Gutierrez recently, who mentioned that from since the um, Start uh, since the establishment of the United Nations, there hasn't been a major hot concentration between global powers. So, um, as the citizens citizens of this world, I think everyone would agree that we hope it will continue this way, and uh, we won't have any hot wars between major powers um, at all. And um, ourselves and children, our children will live in peaceful coexistence with each other and uh, the mother nature. So, I would like to thank. Our panel speakers today, uh, Professor Roger Markwick, Professor Mark Edele, uh, Associate Professor Alexey Muraviev, um, Associate Professor Slobodan Kvladev Glava, uh, Dr. Leonid Petrov for their thought-provoking presentations, um, also Griffiths Asia Institute, including uh, Professor Kathleen Burns, um, um, Alia Ravet and Natasha Vera to help to organize uh, the event, um, as, as well as um, all the guests, including representative of Diplomatic Corpus in Australia. So um, thank you very much for fighting your time this uh, Thursday afternoon. So hope to see you again in our future events. And uh, goodbye and have a nice evening.